Y'all can have a seat and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Well, I, I have a friend who for a while during his life, he sold weightlifting supplements, like the kind that you mix in a shake and, and drink and they bulk you up. And probably it's not a surprise for you looking at me um, that that's not really my thing. Weightlifting is not really my jam. I don't take supplements. But if I did, I would have bought them from him because that dude is ripped. He looks like a walking advertisement for his product. He has massive biceps. Clearly, the stuff is working on him. If you're going to buy weightlifting supplements, you're not going to buy them from a 100-pound weakling who claims to use them because clearly they're they're not working. You're going to buy from the guy who's huge, who has massive guns. You're going to buy from the guy who looks different than the rest of us, right? Well, that same principle applies to the life that God has called us to live, to to our job here as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's think about it for a moment. What is our reason for existing? Why are we here on the planet Earth? Well, you've heard it before. We've been saying it a lot so that it will sink in. Our reason for existence, we are here to help people find and follow Jesus. It's the only reason God has left you here on this planet. Everything else is better in heaven. He has you here for this time to help people find and follow Jesus. You may recall our goal as a, sem- as, a, as a campus, as a church, this semester is for each and every one of us to initiate at least two spiritual conversations with people who are far from Jesus. Because that, that's what God wants us to do with our lives. And so this semester, we're challenging every one of us, including myself. So I, I'm doing this. I hope you're doing this. I hope if I ask you after the service, you can tell me about a couple of the conversations you have had. If I see you jet, I will know what that means. So hopefully all of us are having these spiritual conversations with people far from Jesus, because that's why we're still here. But if we're going to be successful Helping people to find and follow Jesus, what must be true of us? We must stand out. We must look different than the rest of the world in some good and beneficial way. When, When people in the world look at our lives, there must be something that they see that makes them say, wow, I would like some of that. Otherwise, why would they bother listening to the message that we share? So if we're going to help people find and follow Jesus, our lives must look different than theirs. And that's what Paul is going to focus on in this passage. That's the big idea. That's what it's all about. Look at the beginning of our passage this morning, verse 17. We're just going to read a little part of this to begin with. Verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk... No longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Again, that's, that's the big idea of all that we're talking about this morning. Walk, he's talking about lifestyle. So, so how you live. What people see when they look at your life. You are to live a life that's different than the, the Gentiles. And, and that's just a way for Paul to talk about the rest of the world. The, the culture that they live in. Their lives need to look different than the lives of, of all the rest of the people around them. And so if we're going to help people find and follow Jesus, our lives must stand out. We must look different than them in some good and beneficial way. So let's think for a moment about what our society looks like. How would you describe the world that we live in? Well, there are these 
brief moments of beauty in our culture. Like when tens of thousands of people jumped in to help all those people south of us when the hurricane struck. That, that was a beautiful moment. But you realize that's the exception, not the rule, right? Usually in our country, it takes some kind of like national disaster for our better angels to come out. How would you describe our culture most of the time? Well, a few words come to my mind. The first is selfish. The, the culture we live in is remarkably selfish and materialistic. If you look at the numbers, Americans on average give only about 2 to 3% of their income to any kind of charitable cause, to anyone in need. And about a third of American households give nothing at all. It's actually interesting. This will surprise you. The stingiest group of all? The middle class. It's middle class who, who generally are most focused only on their own needs. This is actually why uh, a week or so ago we had to have five former presidents and Lady Gaga show up to do this huge benefit concert. Why? Because giving isn't our natural disposition. America is, is inherently selfish and so it took a massive concert to get people to open their wallets and give. So we live in a selfish world. We live in a second word that, that I would use, an unkind society. It's kind of probably the, the most descriptive word I could use for our culture at the moment. We just seem really unkind to each other. People are so quick to get angry and be offended. And it doesn't matter which political party you're part of. All of them do the same thing. They don't let things go. They don't forgive. They don't forget. Instead, they're always upset with one another, so unkind towards one another. Third word that comes to my mind describing this society we live in is isolated. It's remarkable when you think about it. We live in a time of unprecedented communications technology, right? If you want to reach out and communicate with someone, you can literally pull this little device out of your pocket and communicate with anyone in the world by, by a phone call or, or a text message or a tweet or a post or a snap or FaceTime, all these different ways that we can communicate. And yet the surveys are absolutely clear. We as a society are more isolated and lonely than we have ever been. That's why, I, I don't know if you're following the news, there is an epidemic of suicide among middle-aged men in our country, and it's because so many of them are so profoundly lonely. So you look at the world that we live in, and it's a world that is selfish and unkind and isolated, and if those words describe us, then why would anyone want to listen when we tell them about Jesus? We're the 100-pound weakling trying to sell weightlifting supplements. No one's going to buy that. If we want people to follow Jesus, our lives have to look fundamentally different than the world that we live in. Our lives must be better in some measurable way. So Paul, in this passage this morning, he wants to help us Figure out how to live a countercultural life. A life that stands out, that looks different than everyone else in this world. And so as we unpack this passage, there's going to be a couple questions that Paul is going to answer for us this morning. The first is how. How do you live a countercultural life? Obviously, it's not easy or it wouldn't be countercultural. If the kind of life Paul is describing was easy, then everyone would do it. Now, this is the swimming against the current kind of life. And it's always hard to swim 
against the current. And so let's look at what Paul says to us. How do we live this kind of life? Look at verse 22. Paul says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is an interesting passage. It's one of the few times that I I think this, I use the New American Standard Bible, where I think they really mistranslated it. They translated these verbs as commands. You should lay aside the old self. You should put on the new self. I don't think that's right. I think they're actually statements of fact. I think they're telling you something that has already happened in your life. And so how do you live this hard countercultural life? Well, the first thing Paul tells you is you've got to recognize what's already happened to you. You have already laid aside the old self. The old self is who you were before you came to know Jesus. It's what Paul described back in chapter 2. Look there real quick. Beginning of chapter 2, you know these verses. I reference them all the time because they're just so clear and compelling and awful. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is what your life was like before you came to know Jesus. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That means you couldn't resist sin. You couldn't say no to temptation in your life. You were a child of wrath. That means you were separated from God and from his power and his work in your life. So that describes the world that we live in. That was you. But you are no longer who you used to be. Because Paul says you have put on the new self. Again, it's describing something that's already true for believers. You've put on this this new self. You became this new person who is freed from sin, who is freed from wrath. That's the good news of the gospel that we were just singing about. When it talks about how Jesus has given you new life, that's not a cliche. That is a reality. You are a new person. What's the most frequent metaphor the Bible uses to describe your salvation? I don't know if you've thought about this. Most frequent metaphor, birth. You have been born into a new family. When you trusted in Jesus, that was not some kind of religious action. That was you coming to life. You you came to life as a new person. The old you is dead and buried and gone. Now you are a new you, a new creature. Paul goes to great lengths to unpack that good news of the gospel, of this new life we have through faith in Jesus. He tells us it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, our old self, who we were before Jesus, has been crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, buried in the ground, gone forever, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. You're no longer under sin and wrath because that you is dead. Instead, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The moment that you heard the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could have eternal life as a free gift, the moment you heard that and said yes 
to Jesus for the first time. There was a moment of creation, like Genesis 1 happened in your life. You became this new living thing. The old you is dead, the new you is here. And that's true, that's a settled fact that has happened in your past if you've trusted in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it is a glorious, wonderful verse, but I am a a skeptic by nature. And so the thought that pops in my head is, well, but what if I don't feel that? (laughs) Because most days I still feel like a sinner. I still struggle with temptation and, and I still struggle with pride and selfishness and I still feel weak and vulnerable and afraid. And, and so what do I do with that, with those feelings? And, and this objection that comes to my mind is, is to ask, well, Paul, what, what exactly in me is new? Because I still see a lot going on here that looks like everybody else. So what in me is new? And Paul's answer is the Holy Spirit. Something happened in you that changed everything. I, Blake, I'm still a sinner. I'm still weak. I still struggle. But I am no longer alone. God himself, the second member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, now lives inside of me forever. That, that is true forever. And, and we saw that in our, in our first passage in Ephesians, been a couple months, been a while, so let me take you back there, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul said, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit came into you forever. Now God lives in you. That's the new you. It's a human filled with God, the almighty, supernatural, sovereign God. That, that fact is easy to say theologically, and you probably heard it before. It's hard to wrap your minds around. So it's one of the things that, that I talk a lot to my class. I teach um, some of our younger staff here at Grace Bible Church. I teach them theology. And, and over and over again, this, this truth comes up in our class because we walk them through the entire Bible. I start in Genesis. I take them through the Old Testament and then to the New Testament. And I want them to see how much better it is to live in the New Testament age than in the Old Testament age. For a lot of reasons, but here's maybe the most powerful and meaningful this morning. In the Old Testament, where did God dwell on earth? He's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere in a sense. But where did his particular glory and power dwell? In a room. Okay, in, in a room of a building. It was called the Holy of Holies. It was a temple. It was in Jerusalem. And, and it was really hard to go in there. Actually, only one guy ever got to go in. The high priest, no one else could go in. And so God's presence was distanced from you. Where does God's presence live now? In you. In me. Right here. Not the building. This could burn. It doesn't matter. It's in us. You are a walking temple. God lives in you. That's the new you. That's the reality. Whether you feel it or not, you are never alone. The second member of the Trinity who hovered above the waters and created the universe in Genesis 1 now lives inside of you. And the result is you now have new power. You have a a supernatural source of power in you who enables you to say no to sin at any moment. You'd never have to give in to temptation. You can walk in obedience. The Holy Spirit living in you, he is giving you new desires. He is transforming your mind. That's what Paul was getting at in the verse we read right in the middle, verse 23. You, you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. The Holy Spirit is renewing your mind, giving you new desires, new, new affections, new loves that are godly and honoring to God. 
And so the Holy Spirit is giving you, creating these new desires in you. And then third, he's making you part of this new family. You now have a a new family that you belong to that is more eternal and more important than your biological family. You're now part of this, the body of Jesus Christ on earth. And so let's get back to the question that we started with. How do you live a countercultural life? Well, it's by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Countercultural life is so hard that it is impossible for humans to live. But all things are possible for God, and he is in you. And so when you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you, you can live a countercultural life that stands out to the rest of the world. And so Paul put it this way in Galatians 5, verse 16. He said, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Desires of the flesh, that's what comes naturally to us. That's what, what we crave doing, just like the world craves doing. But we can say no to those cravings if we'll walk by the Spirit. Now, how do you walk by the Spirit? Well, let me give you a picture. If you want to know what... What is my life supposed to look like? Well, picture a busy intersection in New York City. And there are cars flying everywhere. And there's this little child at the corner, at the crosswalk. And the light shows up that that the child can cross. But it's a little child and it's New York City. How is that child going to get across the street safely? By holding up a hand. And a parent takes a hand and walks the child across. That's life. Okay, you, you are the little child beside the busy intersection. You're not going to make it through life successfully alone. But you no longer have to walk alone. Just hold up your hand. Say, yes, Holy Spirit, whatever you want to do in me and through me, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to rely upon you. Please lead me by the hand forward. And the Holy Spirit will. So the way that we live this countercultural life that draws people to find and follow Jesus is we walk by the Spirit. We rely upon Him. So that's, that's the first question answered. Now for maybe a question that's going to feel a little more concrete, a little more practical. Okay, if I'm walking by the Spirit, what will my life actually look like? What are the characteristics of a, of a spirit-filled life? Well, that's where Paul goes next. He spends actually the bulk of the passage describing what it looks like to walk by the Spirit, this countercultural life. What does it look like? Well, let's pick it up in verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And here's the fascinating part. When you read all of those verses, what are they all about? They're all about relationships. That's, that's fascinating. So we know from other passages that Jesus cares very much about our private morality. 
He cares about that. But if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, how will the world know that I follow you? Jesus would not point to your private morality. What would he say? Well, fortunately, he he said, he told us in John 13. By this, says Jesus, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The primary thing in your life that shows people that you follow Jesus is how you treat other people. It's not your private morality. It's not your knowledge. It's not your theology. It's how you treat other people. That's the the most important thing. That's why God cares so much about our relationships with each other. Because this is how we advertise to the world that the gospel is true. And so Paul walks us through what it looks like to truly love one another. He's going to tell us what things we need to avoid and what things we need to practice in our lives if we're going to truly love one another. And so let's start with what we need to avoid. So number one, what are you going to avoid? Unresolved anger. And that's where Paul goes in verses 26 and 27. We need to avoid unresolved anger. Now here's the key to understanding anger. Anger is not sinful. How do I know that? Because guess who got angry? Jesus. Jesus got angry when he walked into the temple and saw a group of people taking advantage of another group of people. And that made him angry. And it should. Anger is a natural, legitimate, righteous response to being hurt or seeing someone else hurt. So anger is not sinful. The key is what you do with that anger. Okay, so let me illustrate. What what does God want you to do with that anger? Well, I'm guessing many of you have had the misfortune at some point of driving your car or SUV or pickup truck and looking on the dashboard and seeing that. You saw at some point a check engine light flash and it caused you anxiety in that moment because you know this isn't good. It's not fun to see that light just like it's not fun to feel anger. Okay, so the check engine light came on, and the moment that it came on, you now had a choice. Are you going to ignore it or resolve it? It's really easy to ignore. You just do nothing. It's really hard to resolve. That takes time and effort and sometimes money. you got to do something to fix it. And so most people choose not to resolve their anger productively because that takes effort. They just ignore it. They just suppress it. That's what we see over and over again in the world that we live in is anger not being dealt with productively. And what's the result? If you just let anger lie, if you just ignore it, what happens to you? Well, verse 31, look again at verse 31. Bitterness, wrath, anger, in the sense of unresolved anger, clamor, slander, malice, that is what unresolved anger creates in your life unresolved anger always grows just like a check engine light you don't resolve if you ignore that light what happens i don't know but it's going to be bad it's going to end up costing you a lot of money in the long run the problem doesn't go away it just gets worse so it is with anger when you ignore it paul actually says he told us in the passage we read verse 27 when you ignore anger you're giving the devil an opportunity You're giving Satan an opportunity in your life and in your relationships to grow that anger into things like bitterness. Bitterness is settled hatred. 
for somebody who has wronged you. And slander, that's when you go behind other people's back to shame their reputation, to tear them down. And wrath, that's violence. And, and uh, malice, that's thinking or planning evil towards other people. These words describe the world that we live in. Why? Because people aren't dealing with their anger appropriately. They're letting it grow into all this evil. That's why Paul tells us this, this principle back in verse 26. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now that's a principle, not a rule. He's not saying you have to deal with anger today. Julie and I in our own marriage have found often a good night's sleep helps everything go better. So it doesn't have to be today, but the principle is be prompt. Deal with that anger, work through that anger in a prompt and productive way. Address it, talk about it, pray about it. Yes, that takes work, but it's worth it because it helps you to avoid all the destruction and pain of verse 31. So we we resolve our anger through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray about it. We're going to talk through it. Even when those conversations are hard and uncomfortable, we're going to deal with our anger promptly and productively. And let me just say, sometimes that's going to take more than a day. Sometimes that's going to take time, and sometimes that's going to take help. If you've been hurt really severely by someone or for a long period of time, well, that's not anger that you can just resolve like that. And, and it's important to know, if, if you've been hurt really bad, and all of a sudden now you feel really guilty because you're having a hard time letting that anger go, I want you to know God's not angry with you because of your unresolved anger. He understands it can be really hard to let go of anger that that comes from a deep hurt in your life. He's patient and compassionate. All he wants from you today is to be willing to say to him, please help me. Just take the first step. Just pray to God. God, please help me to begin to work through this Anger, God, please let this anger not fester and grow in my life into bitterness and wrath and malice. Please instead free me from it. It may be that, that as you work through this anger, you, you need help. That's, that's often the case. That's where pastors or counselors or a mentor can really help you talk with someone about that source of anger in your life so that God can begin to free you from that. Anger, not a sin. Unresolved anger, a sin that will hurt you and hurt your relationships. So if we're going to live these countercultural lives of love towards one another, we got to deal with our anger promptly and productively. We avoid unresolved anger. Now, what do we practice? Well, in summary, Paul gives us a lot of things, but in summary, what he wants us to practice is kindness. That's what he says in verse 32. Kindness is a good summary word for everything that should describe how we treat one another. The problem with the word kindness is it is just too common. We start teaching preschoolers, hey, be kind to one another. Everybody in the world knows we should be kind to each other. And the funny thing is if you ask pretty much anyone, are you a kind person? Almost everyone will say, yeah, I'm kind, kind of. And everybody's going to say, I'm basically a kind person. The word has no teeth to it because it's so overused. And so Paul spends most of this passage going into detail about what a kind life looks like. What exactly does it look like for John Mark and I to be kind to one another? 
What exactly do we need to do in each other's lives for us to be practicing kindness? And so there's three specific things that Paul gets at here. Lots of different things he says, but it can be boiled down to three steps to live a kind life. The first mark of kindness is that you forgive. It's verse 32. You're willing to forgive one another. One of the most frequent questions I've been asked in my role as a pastor is what, what exactly is forgiveness? Help us understand that. In Greek, the word is very simple. It means to let go. You open your hand. That is forgiveness. You, just, you open your hand and let it go. Sometimes though, when we think about letting go of an offense, opening your hand and letting go, to understand it, it's helpful to say what it's not. So let, let me start there. What is forgiveness not? Well, forgiveness doesn't mean that you just let the person hurt you again. That's not forgiveness, just allowing the person who's hurt you to keep hurting you. That that doesn't equal forgiveness in the Bible. Forgiveness doesn't mean ignoring something criminal that's happened. If, If there's been something criminal against you, you still go to the police and that can still be forgiveness. Okay, there's still consequences. Forgiveness doesn't wipe away consequences. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that you don't go talk to the person who's hurt you. Um, forgiveness, sometimes if the offense was really little and unintentional, just let it roll off your back. Don't worry about that. But if it was a, a really harmful offense or if it shows a pattern in the person's life, then actually loving that person means what? It means you go tell them, right? To forgive them means you are also going to confront them about that sin in their lives because they need to know that that's something that hurts you. Okay, so those things aren't forgiveness. So what exactly is forgiveness? Well, the most helpful way to describe it, it's interesting, all the way through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God often included a synonym or parallel word for forgive. That word is forget. Forget. Now, what does it mean for God to forget? Because God is God. He doesn't like forget things like a failure of a neural synapse and all of a sudden that's gone. That's not what forget means in the Bible. Forget means that you choose not to rehearse something. So, so let me explain it to you. you. You can't control what memories you hold on to or not. That's, that's not under your control. What you can control is what you do with those memories. So picture that your brain is like a DVD player. And something in, in, in just day-to-day life brings up that memory. All of a sudden, the DVD pre- presents itself. Maybe you see the person who hurt you. Or, or you see someone else hurt in a way that you were hurt. And all of a sudden, the memory of that offense comes rushing to your mind. You can't control that. That's just how your, your brain works. But now, what you can control is whether you let that offense play. Whether you push the play button on the DVD player. Am I going to remember all that, w- that all that happened to me? Am I going to let that video play in my mind? Or am I going to say, nope, I've forgiven them. I'm going to move my mind to something else. That's what forgiveness does. It says, I I let go of of rehearsing that offense over and over again. I'm no longer going to push play on what happened to me. Even when it comes to my mind, I'm going to choose to think about something else. That's what it means to forgive one another. We choose not to rehearse those past offenses that we've committed against each other. Now, again, just like with anger, this may take time. And this may be really hard. Forgiveness can be really tough. And so, just as we talked about with anger, what God wants you to do today, it may be that you can't yet forgive. Maybe you were really hurt in some deep way. All God wants you to do today is say, God, please help me to begin to forgive. Please help me to want to forgive. Please help me to move towards forgiveness. It may be, again, that you need to talk to someone about what was done to you. Come talk to a pastor or a counselor or a trusted friend. Just take those first steps 
to begin to move towards forgiveness because that will free you from the pain and destruction of an unforgiving heart. Okay, so to be kind to one another, the first thing is, is we forgive each other of things that we've done wrong. Second, we speak grace and truth. It's interesting, Paul says in verse 25 uh, that we should speak truth. It's interesting that he doesn't just say, don't lie. Okay, don't lie, that's good, and you shouldn't lie, but that's not enough for God. So Paul phrases it differently. It's not enough to just not lie. You need to speak truth proactively into people's lives. You need to be the kind of person who, who talks uh, truth to other people, even when it's uncomfortable. Uh, this can be really hard to do. Um, it can be really hard to receive, too. So a couple years ago, I, I remember very distinctly, very clear memory in my head. Um, I was having a really bad month. I was really struggling. A lot of you know I struggled with depression, and it was really strong at that time, and I was really angry with God about it. And I sat down with a couple really close friends in my life who are, who are great mentors to me. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm sharing my life with them, but I'm also kind of complaining about how frustrated I am at God for allowing this to go on. And I remember one of my friends looking me straight in the eyes and saying, Blake, you are prideful. That was about the worst conversation I've ever had with anybody. It was so uncomfortable and unfun, and yet it was so life-giving. I needed that. I'll be grateful for that conversation for the rest of my life, even though I never want to have it again. It was painful, but it was life-giving because another believer cared enough about me to say what I needed but didn't want to hear. That's what it means to speak truth. So we speak truth into one another's lives. But that alone is not enough because Paul balances that. He says we also speak grace. Grace is giving someone something good they don't deserve. We give grace with our words. We edify. That means to build other people up. What does this look like? Well, I'm really proud I can say look at my daughter. My daughter, Gracie, is actually really good at this. Even at eight years old, I can tell this is like a spiritual gift for her because it's so natural to her. She's very empathetic. She can sense what other people are feeling way better than her dad can. And so she'll be in a room hanging out with people, with, with her friends, and she will like intuitively sense that one of her friends is, is sad about something. She just knows that it's true. And she'll walk over there and, and just unbidden, she'll begin to talk about that person and, and good things about them, good things in their life. She'll begin to encourage and give life with her words. And what's fun is that we didn't know her personality would be like that when we chose her name. Grace is her legal name. She reflects her name, and that's, that's wonderful. We're really grateful for that because what Julie and I have seen is that people who speak grace save lives. When you speak words of grace in a moment of need, you save people from despair and depression. Okay, so Gracie is learning to do that. The key for us as we look at this is to recognize there are a lot of people in this world who speak either grace or truth, but not both. The guy who speaks all truth, no grace, this is a guy who's like the smartest guy in the room, and he's really witty, and he's really funny, but he just skewers people with his words. Well, that just leaves corpses in his path. The person who's all grace and no truth doesn't want to say the, the truthful thing for fear of hurting someone else's feelings. Well, you're a nice person that's not helping anybody. You're not helping people grow up in the Lord. We need both. When people speak both grace and truth, it is life-giving. I love how it puts it in Proverbs 27. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
The friend who speaks graciously and truthfully into your life, even when it hurts you, even when it's uncomfortable, that is a true friend who helps you to grow. So our relationships with one another should be characterized by words of grace and truth. We must have both. Third, so we forgive, we speak grace and truth. Third, we share with one another. Paul talks about not stealing, instead working very hard. Don't steal. That should kind of go without saying. So we're not going to talk much about that one. We're going to talk about the share one. And, and this is really interesting to me. Verse 28, um, it's a significant verse because it actually gives us a reason for waking up tomorrow morning and going to work. Because the reality is most of us don't really like to do that, especially on Monday mornings. We're not like excited about putting in another 40, 50, 60 hours at work this coming week. And so when you have to wake up on Monday morning, your brain is going to ask you, why am I doing this? Why am I going to work and and doing this? And there's a number of reasons that the Bible gives, but this is one of the most important right here. You get up early on Monday morning and you go to work and you work hard. Why? So that you can earn money to share with those in need. It's part of the reason you're here on earth is to earn money. There's a a sacredness to your job. Maybe you feel like Sunday is sacred day and Monday is not. No, they're both equally religiously important. It's a sacred day when you go to work because you are earning money to share with those in need. And that's part of how you advertise to the world that the gospel is true. So Paul challenges us to share. Now, share is a significant word. He doesn't say give it all away. No, you can take some of your money and save it for yourself and spend it on your needs and desires. That's good. But you don't spend it all on yourself. You share it with others. You share it with people in need. Now, when people hear that, okay, I got to share my money. Okay, well, Blake, how much? like the most common question. What percentage am I supposed to give? Well, the New Testament doesn't tell you. In the Old Testament, there was a percentage, but you don't live under that anymore. Now you live in the New Testament, and the New Testament just says, share till it hurts. Basically, the principle that God gives us. Share until it's no longer comfortable to share. Everyone in the world shares when it's comfortable. Hey, I got excess, so why don't I give a little bit to you? That's easy. Bible challenges you to go beyond that. Share until there's actually a sacrifice you're making. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it when he's asked, what percentage do you need to give? He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the same standard common of those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. Again, how do you show that the gospel works? You live a different life. You're not charitable, you're radically charitable. You give radically, sacrificially, selflessly to those in need. I'd love to share with you a story of of one family in our church who has experienced that kind of radical generosity. I'm going to share with you a video about the Perrys. I work with Jared Perry. He's the youth pastor here at Southwood. And some of you know he and his wife, Abby, have faced some incredibly huge challenges in their family. And so this video is about one of those challenges and how other believers responded and what a difference it made in their lives. Your son has bilateral club feet. So then in September, we had baby gap. (laughs) And uh, nine days later, started going to casting appointments at Shriners Hospital. It was super hard. We'd go down and get casted. Gabe came out of surgery where they just cut two tendons and he's three months old and he was just screaming. The doctor comes in 
to tell us what's going on. Abby obviously rushes out to go into the recovery room. I said, yeah, so we're expecting that after this and after he recovers that we should be able to see his feet moving. And, and she said, yeah, I think, I think we're looking at something that's more serious than clubfoot. Instead of blaming God, finding myself saying, no, that's actually the brokenness of this world. And I was tired of fighting the wrong person. And, and if I was going to gear up for this, I at least wanted to be fighting the right person in this fight. This is Something, just it. This is yeah. probably what we're going to know. And at the same time, in the day-to-day, he's doing amazingly. Mm-hmm. He, he suddenly, shockingly, started walking right before his second birthday. He just popped up off the end of a slide at the park with Jared and walked away from it. I mean, it was stunning. I'm I'm getting all caps texts back from kids that they're showing and like they're talking about how emotional this moment was. And, uh, but even like our staff at Grace just feels like extended family to me. And I know like, I'm not just saying that because I'm on video. Like they just, they were there. Like I, I finally found people that I felt like I could be honest with. We were just really well taken care of and I don't see any need to be entirely centric on our own homes and our own families. I only see evidence that we thrive when we're focused on other people. Mm. And so far it's proving Mm. true. (laughs) We thrive when we focus on other people. That's how God designed our lives to work. If we're going to be different than the rest of the world, And show them that there is this better way to live, finding and following Jesus, then we need to share with one another. We need to share with those in need in a radical way. And that's what happened in the Perry's life. People here in this church gave of their time and financial resources, not at a reasonable or comfortable level, but at a radical level, at a costly level. And it and it has led to a beautiful and powerful story that shows the world there's something real here. This is not just us getting together on Sunday morning to make ourselves feel better. There's a supernatural power at work in this place. And the world sees it when we share. And so the challenge that God is putting before us. The reason he's left us here on earth is to help people find and follow Jesus. But the only way they will listen to what we say is if our lives stand out. And our lives are going to only stand out if we love one another radically. And that means avoiding unresolved anger, dealing with anger promptly and productively. And it means speaking grace and truth to one another and forgiving each other when we hurt each other and sharing radically and generously with those in need. You do have one opportunity. Many of you are already doing that. If, if you're not yet sharing at a radical level with those in need, I encourage you when you go out in the foyer, Guff talked about it a little while ago, you'll see tables to your right for Compassion International. You can go over there and they have pictures out of children, real children in the world who are in desperate poverty. You can choose to sponsor one of those children. That's part of how you show the world that there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. So if, if you're not yet sharing, go over there, sponsor a child. If you already are sharing with people in your life, I encourage you, keep doing that. Because that's what shows people that the gospel is real. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that there is power in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that this is not just a religious exercise as we gather on Sunday mornings, but that we are coming together as your people in the power of your Spirit, sitting under your Word so that you can transform us in real and meaningful ways. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, now that you have caused us to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that you would help our lives to begin begin looking newer and newer and and more and more different than the world around us. We pray that you would free us from anger, that you would help us to forgive one another. We pray that you would help us to speak grace and truth to each other, even when it is painful and hard. And we pray, God, help us to share, not at a comfortable level, but at a radical level. Lord, we pray, help us to share selflessly with those in need. We pray that the result of of this transformative work in our lives, helping us to love one another better, we pray that the result would be that the world would look at Grace Bible Church and be transfixed at the beauty of love here. We pray that people would be drawn to your son. We pray that people would trust in him. We pray that people would be so drawn by our lives that they would listen to our words and hear and believe the good news of the gospel. Please, Lord, add many to your family through Grace Bible Church. We pray this in the name and for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.